0: You may notice in that slide that I have up there's a, a bridge and It's in the heavens and it abruptly ends and there's somebody on that path and that really is a picture of the story of the church. It's yet unfinished and plank after plank after plank the Lord just adds another day for he's given us this day to live in and when this one is finished there'll be another And we're kind of making our journey to heaven. And from nearly 2,000 years ago until tonight, we've been in the last days. And we're going to see that tonight as the Apostle Peter preaches this amazing first sermon here in Acts chapter 2. And if you look back to last Sunday as the power of the Holy Spirit has now fully come upon and rested upon those believers who were gathered at Pentecost, they've now been empowered to that work that God is going to do with them. There is a new boldness to preach that gospel message. And I believe it's a boldness we need in our world tonight, a boldness that in many churches is lacking. Many pastors are unafraid to preach psychology. They're unafraid to preach program but they're very afraid to actually preach the gospel because the gospel is an offense. Because narrow is the way that leads unto righteousness and few there are who go by it. The message of the gospel is singular. It is not pluralistic in any way, shape, or form. It is not inclusive to all other religions. It does not allow for tolerance of other competing truths, because Jesus said about himself that he was the one singular truth, he was the one way, and in fact, he was the only way to God the Father. And so unfortunately for the world that we live in, that leaves a dilemma in religion. And while we don't believe here at Calvary Chapel that we have a religion, but rather a relationship When one speaks of religion, and one begins to include all of the religions of the world, they cannot all be true. And because Jesus declared that he was the one way, and the one truth, and the one life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, if we truly believe that it is at the name of Jesus that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that in fact Jesus spoke the truth when he said those words in John fourteen six, then the only power there is that leads unto salvation is the name of Jesus Christ. Peter finally gets it. You see, if you looked at anybody in Scripture and you were going to pick the least likely to succeed candidate from all the disciples, you would probably put Peter fairly high up on the list. Foot in the mouth, Peter. Can't do anything right two times in a row, Peter. Peter, the Christ denier, who's also the thrice restored Peter. Peter who managed to blow it on so many occasions. Peter who had the wrong answer seemingly to every single thing that was asked of him. That same Peter adding in the power of the Holy Spirit which has now come. You see the only difference between the old Peter before the crucifixion and before Pentecost came. The only difference between old Peter And new Peter is the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's the only difference. He's the same guy, same life experience. No doubt his voice was the same. His intellect unchanged, but he was now empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so it is that Peter that we find here in verse 14 of Acts 2 and this second part of this study, power from heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Lord, we love you. We, we've come, God, to your house tonight to sit in your living room and to prayerfully hear your voice and pray that you'd overlook the weaknesses of the one who delivers the message. And would you from heaven speak into your people's hearts and minds? Would you instruct us by the power of the word that you authored by the Holy Spirit? Lord, these words are not mine, they're yours. And so, God, we pray that you would add now the power necessary for your word to do in our lives what it needs to do. We ask these things in the wonderful, the amazing, the beautiful, the holy, the majestic name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Verse 14, but Peter. So we're looking back a little bit when it says but. So now we're moving to the next phase, but it's in. Looking back at what has just happened, the spirits come upon these 120 people who are gathered in this room and they now were empowered by the Holy Spirit. But Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, this is not the old Peter. The old Peter, do you remember his little story as he, John records it? Of the little girl at the campfire as he was waiting for Jesus after he was arrested? Do you remember how he denied him? It was a little servant girl. And Peter got really bold when it was a 12-year-old that was four foot tall. I don't know him! But other than that, he'd spent most of his time denying that he ever knew Jesus. I don't know it. Why do you ask me these things? That same man, now lit on fire by the Holy Spirit, raises his voice and says to them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, I remember where this is. This is Roman Jerusalem that is ruled religiously by the Jews and the last person they want to hear from is a turncoat traitor because he's speaking to a Jewish audience, a man who is Jewish by heritage, birth, and even practice up to this point. And yet now he's going to speak in the one place. He probably shouldn't do this message. And I've often read this and it gives me great comfort because a vast majority of the time if you're like me, there's that little, still, small voice in the back of your head that's not the Lord, it's the enemy. Well, it's, you shouldn't say that right now. Don't be bold about it now. I mean, come on. I mean, somebody's going to be offended. It's at that point in time. Let this be known to you and heed my words For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. The first hour was 6 a.m. sunrise. Third hour of the day is 9 a.m. It's 9 in the morning. And so the Spirit comes. Look, these guys are not inebriated. They're not drunk. They're not what you believe. There's something else at work here. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. What's going on here is not that these guys found, you know, a nice keg someplace. It it wasn't that they went and got into the wine cellar. It it was not that they'd been, you know, in some way, shape, or form altering their mind. Their spirits had been nut by the Holy Spirit's work. They had had a, a high impact event. And that event had now empowered them. And he says, look, this is exactly what the prophet Joel was speaking about. I want to be very careful here because this passage is often misinterpreted. He wasn't saying this is exactly the saying that Joel was talking about. It's the thing that Joel was talking about. And Joel talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because the content of Joel's message very clearly is still tonight yet future. Because it speaks of a time when God will judge the nations for what they have done to his land and his people Israel. And he is yet to do that. And it shall come to pass in the last days. And as I said, I believe that from the time of Pentecost until this very night, we have been in the last days. And the easiest way to understand that is what was true then must also be true tonight. And so if those words were spoken by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, authored through the prophet Joel, then they cannot ever not be true. So if he says last days, we're still in the last days. We're just in the laster days. We're a whole lot further along the timeline of the last days. And so the last days, in the broadest sense, is the period of time from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. And then the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, followed by the millennial reign of Christ. You see, as all these things unfold, the last days is not two of them. In that sense, it's the age of grace. That in the last days, God says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, you see, from a Jewish perspective, that would have been heresy. Because the Jewish Jewish people believed that the only flesh that would ever be empowered by the Holy Spirit was Jewish flesh. Those who were of the tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were Jewish by heritage, by tradition, by lineage, by practice, by religion, by all of the feast days, by everything that was Hebrew. Peter's throwing a major stone in their gears. And so he says, in the last days, beginning then, Going all the way to now, and notice what he says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. In other words, every bit of the flesh of mankind would be able to receive in fullness the power of the Spirit. And up to Pentecost, that had not happened. The Spirit was in the world. The Spirit was around believers instructing and giving them an an opportunity to understand righteousness and sin. But the Spirit had not indwelt believers. And he says, the result of that is your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And I want you to underline the word your. This is a Jewish man speaking to a Jewish audience. And so he obviously is speaking primarily of Israel here. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so towards the end of that period of time called the last days, which began at Pentecost until tonight, these things will increase. And so the spirit of God will increase in its work, in his work in this world. And they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs on the earth beneath, and blood and fire, and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness. And so you can obviously see what Joel is talking about that Peter is repeating is still not yet fully come to pass. And the moon into blood. And therefore the coming of the great and the awesome day of the Lord. And so now he gets his very specific, and tells us exactly what he's actually pointing at. And you can look at it this way. As he began to point, and he's saying the last days, he's speaking of the day that he spoke, 9 o'clock in the morning, and he's now 40 days after Passover. He's on the 50th day. He's now reached the day of Pentecost. And as he points backwards, he, he could say, well, it wasn't there. And as he points forward... It's there. That's where we're going. And what does he say it's going to be? Before the coming of the great and the awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now because we have the completed revelation of God all of the books of the Old Testament, we can put in a couple of pieces of critical information. Because we know that the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church at Rome, added those things like one day all Israel will be saved. There in Romans 11. And so he's speaking of this time, which is still yet future. But he's using it as a way to stimulate the mind of the hearer. And the hearer in this group was a Jewish ear listening to a Jewish man deliver a message by a Jewish prophet about the very last days. Peter would open the door of faith to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. When we get there we'll see him go to the house of Cornelius. He'll go to Jaffa. If you travel with us to Israel you'll actually go to the house that Uh, Peter likely was at when he caught that great vision of that blanket coming down from the heavens and and he proclaims, "Let, let not man call unclean that which the Lord has made clean. And Cornelius and his household get saved. But at this point, the gospel's going forth exactly as scripture said to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so the Lord keeps his word The Gentiles really originally were proselytites, if you will, to the Jewish religion and the Jewish way of thinking. And that's really why Paul wrote the letter to the church at Galatia, because there was a lingering connection. And while there is a connection, our Savior is Jewish. Amen? When you meet Jesus, He's going to be Jewish. So we have a deep and a lasting, permanent, eternal connection as Gentile believers, to our Jewish brothers and sisters, many of whom have yet to come to faith. But Scripture says that in the last days, the very last days, all Israel will be saved. When they lose all hope and everything else, and when the Lord intervenes in that very last period of time, the Jewish people are going to understand fully exactly what Peter is going to say here. Now when he says it this time, they are tweaked. They're like, you, you cannot be saying what you're saying right now as a Jewish man. And so we get three explanations here and let's look at them very quickly. The first thing we see is, as he's witnessing here to the lost, he's on a, a Jewish holy day. Uh, and by the way, we've started that period of time. We, we're entering Rosh Hashanah, we'll get to Yom Kippur. Uh, So we're we're in those feast days right now. And, And as he now explains, there's this incredible thing that's happening to these people. And it was unique to them. And he's speaking to them about who they have crucified. That wasn't going to be an easy message. And one of the things about sharing the gospel is the gospel itself is an offense. When you share the real gospel, when you speak that word to people, a lot of times they're not going to like what you have to say. Because they're going to hear it this way. You mean to tell me that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. And if you're true to the gospel, you're going to have to say yes. And here's what follows. You mean every other way is not the way? Yes. You mean there's no other way to get? Yes. There's no other name? Yes. There's no other religion that can? Yes. People get really upset. But if you love them, you won't back down. Because in backing down, you're dumbing down. And if you dumb down, you leave them with something other than Jesus Christ, the Savior. The only lamb. The only way of salvation. That one name. The only name. And so Peter explains a few things to them. This joyful worship, these believers, it wasn't a result of... They weren't, you know, partied out and going, oh, wow, man. No, they, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were experiencing something that happens to us. At times as we come into the presence of the Lord, I've had many Sometimes when I'm worshiping with you and I'm watching what God is doing in your lives and I see the walls come down and I see the Spirit fall on people, when I watch people begin to weep before the Lord, when I see what's going on in the hearts and the minds of people sitting in this congregation, I'm in the same place. I'm like, Lord, Spirit, Come. And empower your people to receive whatever it is that you want to do. It is an experience that you can't explain to people who don't know the Lord. Because spiritual things are spiritually appraised and the carnal mind cannot know them. And when you tell, so you go to work and say, man, the spirit fell last night. You're talking to unbelievers. They're thinking you went to a bar. Yeah, I bet the spirit fell. What kind of spirit was it? And they're thinking it's something you pour out of a bottle. You're talking about the spirit of the living God. Same thing would happen today. And you see that the spirit is at work in the world producing things that are unexplainable and we need to leave them Unexplainable. Because when we try and explain, when I try and explain the full work of the Spirit to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, they kind of get a pretty strange look on their face, generally speaking. Believers know what I'm talking about. They may have not even experienced it themselves, but because the Holy Spirit's in you, you truly believe that the Spirit is at work in the world. The Spirit does things that only the Spirit can do. That's what happens out of all those shoeboxes. The dentist would end up with one with woody in it. Now, I don't know how that year how many woodies were in how many shoe boxes, but I guarantee you it wasn't hundreds. May have been a dozen. And he's in Honduras. And he opens up a box. That's the work of the Holy Spirit speaking to one person at one time, in one place, a very singular message, I got you. I know where you live. And I love you, and I have a plan for your life, and you can trust me. Because if I can send you a woody in a box from somebody you don't know, I can do anything. You see, sometimes we look at things through such human eyes that we miss what's happening here. In in this amazing sermon that's being preached. It would have seemed incredible. And so he says, Look, this is the same Holy Spirit that Joel wrote about. And they're like, What? No, it's supposed to be the Shekinah glory. You know, if you remember, hey, we're the people who had the pillar of fire. We're the one who God gave the tabernacle to. We carted that thing around for 40 years in the wilderness. And God met us in there. And His Spirit dwelt between the cherubim. We know what the Spirit looks like. Can I tell you a lot of the Spirit's kind of like the children of Israel? They look for Him in exactly one place, and it's usually in a sanctuary somewhere. They don't look for Him at work, they don't look for the Holy Spirit in their marriage. They don't look for the Holy Spirit at work in every aspect of their life. They look for the Holy Spirit when the music's just right. Brothers and sisters, be on Holy Spirit watch. Because the Holy Spirit's at work in this world and is working in ways that we cannot know, but you need to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't, you'll miss them. You'll miss them. You'll be looking in the wrong place, you'll be looking at church. Maybe you need to look in the eyes of your kids. Maybe the Holy Spirit's in that sunset. Maybe the Holy Spirit's in a, in a box. Working. 120 Jews gathered that evening. Now by morning. These are the same people, by the way, that it had as their prophet. Men like Moses. Now, for all of his faults, Moses, to me, is nothing short of a miracle. Nothing short of a miracle. Not only should he have never even survived to, to be a prophet of God. I mean, think about his beginnings. The dude's in a basket floating in the Nile. That's not a great start. It's like, hey, I'm destined for greatness. Push me out in the creek. And yet he ends up speaking as the oracles of God. He ends up having a visit with God Almighty, receiving the very words of God. As he receives those words of God, he actually gets those tablets that were written by the hand of God. He's carrying around God's autograph. Have you ever watched people autograph hound at like baseball games or football games? They are nuts. I saw a dude at a Charger game. Now, we had for back in the early 80s, we had season tickets and our seats were kind of right over the tunnel where the Chargers came. I watched a dude go right off the, he's like holding a thing out and he didn't even realize it. And all of a sudden, he disappeared. He's down on the field. He fell over trying to get an autograph. From, like, some third string lineman. (laughs) Didn't even know who he was. Can I get your autograph? (laughs) Pooh! Moses got God's autograph in stone. I'm thinking that's a big deal. I'm pretty sure nobody else had that. He's carrying on, yeah, 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 I got God's autograph. Now he probably didn't do that, but that's the man he was. The same spirit that was at work with Moses was at work with Peter. Except now he's going to work in all kinds of people's lives. Not just a prophet here and there. Not just a mouthpiece of God, but literally begin to indwell individual believers with the same power that Moses had. What Moses had singularly, the body of Christ now has available all of us. Every last one of us. That's why the invitation here is whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It isn't if you meet this criteria or belong to this group or if you understand this great doctrine it's simply calling the name of the Lord Jesus. It was a dawning of the new age, the age of grace. A new way that God would work in the world and what a beautiful picture it was. And so now he gives An explanation that Jesus was actually alive. You see the prevalent theory of the day. So bear in mind this is about a month and a half after the resurrection. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's gone. The Holy Spirit has come. The torch has been passed to the disciples, the believers. And now a a new day is dawning, so to speak. Not just on the church, but on the world. But you see, the one thing that was holding so many people back was the lie that was circulating in the region. And that basic lie was that the disciples and or some of their accomplices had somehow managed to steal the body of Jesus and hid it. And so the theory was Jesus either never died at all and was alive somewhere, Or that he was definitely not raised, but he was truly dead. And the disciples, in a nefarious way, grabbed the body of Jesus and they've hidden it someplace to continue this lie. And so the Apostle Peter, now with great power, speaks to how these things happened and Jesus was alive. Verse 22, now here in Acts 2. Men of Israel... Now, he's getting down. He's on their, I mean, he's in their grill. The the dude is like in their face. You can almost see him. He's like, my brothers, men of Israel, you, you guys have been spreading the rumors. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to by God, to you by miracles. You see, there were a lot of things that you could say about Jesus that maybe you couldn't verify. But Peter's picking on the stuff that basically nobody contested. And the reason we know this is Herod Antipas was so intrigued with Jesus that he questioned John the Baptist about Jesus and even thought, perhaps... That he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Because he knew that Jesus had raised people from the dead. So there was no questioning the miracles of Jesus. There had been thousands of people gathered on the hillside on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee that sat down and a little boy showed up with a couple of loaves and some fish and they all ate And there were enough baskets to fill a basket full of food for every one of the twelve tribes. You see, Peter's going to tell him, look, you need to get your news right. You've been reading the wrong source. You went to the wrong Internet site because these things are not contested by anyone with half a brain. He's getting all over them. Attested by God to you by miracles and wonders. Wonders is simply another way to say things that you can't explain from a natural means. In other words, you don't have an explanation for it. You know, you see a meteorite flash across the sky. Well, we can explain that. But if you saw that same meteorite come down, head towards earth, and then go back up again, that's a wonder. Why? Why? Because it flies in the face of what we know about spatial reality and physics. Anything that's coming down once it enters the atmosphere, unless it's propelled in some way, shape, or form, continues to the ground. Because of gravity. Because of Newton's loss. All of a sudden you see this ball of fire. and goes. You're like, ooh, that's a wonder. Same things happen when Jesus is around. There's all kinds of crazy things happening. Like a whole bunch of demons flying out of some pigs, going to some pigs They jump off the cliff. Bigs don't normally do that. They don't actually like water. They like mud, not water so much. They certainly don't swim very well. So kinds of stuff like that that people saw happen. When you have an eyewitness, it makes the testimony pretty powerful. Amen? So I shared with you before, if you read... Simon Greenleaf's book on on basically the examination of evidence still used in law schools today, The Testimony of the Evangelists, when Simon Greenleaf wrote that, he was trying to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the end of all of his studies, he came to the conclusion that the eyewitnesses saw what they said they saw, they believed it without controversy, and they believed it to the death, which makes it the most powerful witness that you can possibly have. Because when people are willing to die for the story, rather than say, well, I made it up, there's only a couple of possibilities. One is they're completely nuts. Well, that works for a handful of people. But it does not work for thousands of people all claiming the same thing. So all of the stories, which matched up, by the way, perfectly told by countless eyewitnesses who saw the events, were willing to die for those events, that's why Peter is saying, oh, no, 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 no. You're not getting off that easy. That's not going to happen. In signs. Things which they ask for. Remember the Lord says, look, after a while, I'm kind of done doing the sign thing. And so no sign is going to be given unto you except... The sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Three days, three nights, in the belly of a whale, barfed up on a beach. <laughs> Gone from this world, swallowed up into the next, back into this world. So when Jesus says that, guess what happens? He does exactly what he told them he'd do. And they're all thinking, Okay, let's all go see if we can find a scroll of the Book of Jonah. Let's read that story one more time together. Okay? Can you imagine? Oi, man! Like, no! Three days, three nights, belly of the whale on the beach. You, you can, you can probably see Anderson. How many days was he dead? Three. Where was he? Grave. What happened to him? He's alive. Oh no. Peter's just like digging right at their hearts. Those signs which God did through him in your midst. Jesus' ministry was public. He's not like some of the traveling healing evangelist dudes that are on tv right now you can never verify anything that they say it's always well he kind of sort of was partially you know we think maybe kind of blind for two days but you can see now when somebody stinks and they're in the grave and they come walking out that's pretty much incontestable because it happened in front of his family Yep, Lazarus was dead. D-E-A-D, dead. He was in the grave. So much so that they go to Jesus. You maybe don't want to do this right now. Because he stinketh. That's King James, where he's dead and rotten. And Jesus said, oh, you, you people. Lazarus, come forth. Amen? So what does Lazarus do? He does a 1950s mummy movie. I'm over here. What he was really doing, hey, could you get the bandages off of me? Because these things are a little restricting. They're worse than skinny jeans. <laughs> did that in front of a bunch of people. It wasn't like it was in some back alley. Well, I'm going to do a miracle. He, go oh, I get up. He did in the presence of countless witnesses. And they all testified to the same thing. As you yourselves also know. Peter's saying, he's looking at, you guys know this. Don't pretend you don't know. Oh, you can say you don't. But you've been chasing people around, persecuting them, who've said these things. You know they have, to a person, admitted that these things actually happened, And many of you, that's why the Gospels record that in almost every crowd, guess who was there? The Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the Scribes. And so the gospel authors make note of that fact. And the reason they do that is because those guys could have denied being there. But they didn't. Because they were, and what they saw, they saw. And so if there's anything, they would preserve their character by remaining true to what, well, I can't deny it, I saw it. Him being delivered by the predetermined purpose and the foreknowledge of God. The death of Jesus Christ was not just a plot of Annas and Caiaphas and Judas and the Roman rulers. It was God's plan from the beginning. Yes, they had a hand in it. And yes, they carried it out. But if you want to know the real truth about the crucifixion of Jesus, I did it. Jeff Gill was responsible for Jesus being nailed to the cross, and so was anyone else who's ever accepted him as savior. You're the reason he went to the cross. All of us are. That's why he died. He died so that we could live. It wasn't just simply a bunch of really crafty dudes called, "We got him," Because you remember the scribes and the Pharisees, the same group of people, were constantly trying to figure out a way to trap Jesus. You know what the Gospels record? They never did it. Every time they thought they had him, not so much. Because he was God. So it wasn't going to be an elaborate trap. It was going to be the predestined, foreordained plan of God. That's why God looked from heaven and said, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Determined purpose. You have taken him, though, by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And so he says, look, you thought that Annas, Caiaphas, the guards of the high priest, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Roman cohort, Judas, Pilate, the Roman governor... You thought that maybe Herod had something to do with this, but in fact, God had it all under control. And his only begotten son came into this world for the express purpose of giving his life a ransom for many. That as many as who would believe in him should be saved. (laughs) Wow. You know, those crafty Jewish people. Did they intend evil? Yes, they did because of that blindness, because of the inability to see who he was as Messiah. But it was not Jesus who fell into their trap. They fell into God's plans. Very important distinction. You see, it was not possible. And so we see a couple of proofs. The first proof was that the person of Jesus was this incredible person that there was no one like him it was clear it was him it was clear that jesus wasn't like any other person it was clear that he was so incredible and so different than anyone who had ever traveled through that region that there had to be some other power that jesus had and peter just says it's because he was god peter didn't preach that message in tongues he was speaking right to their heart He's probably speaking in everyday Aramaic. It would have been the common language of the region. They're all just listening and going, whoa. That's why it's so important that we speak to people where they are. We want to make sure the message gets home. That it's able to be heard. Notice Peter's second proof, which was the prophecy of David. Very important that we remember that the Old Testament... The Messiah is concealed there, but he's revealed in the new. But he was absolutely visible in the Old Testament. Verse 25 For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. And again, this is the 16th psalm. You can read that later. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. And moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, I want you to see two things here. When David wrote these words, this was a thousand years before Jesus set his feet on planet Earth. This is a thousand B.C., and he's making a very clear reference to the resurrection. You're not going to leave my soul in Hades and you're not going to allow your holy one to see corruption. Jesus saw no corruption in the grave because he didn't stay there. The apostle Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that he first descended who ascended and in doing so he set the captives who were in captivity free. He released Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everyone that you find listed in the hall of faith there in Romans 11. That's how we know where they are. He said, time to go. Everybody thinks I'm in the grave right now, rotting away. But I'm actually down here with you, setting the captives free. Rejoicing with the same man that Abraham saw afar off. Uh, Luke 16 passage. And so he goes on to say, but you have made known to me the ways of life and you will make full joy in your presence. I love that. If you read that in the original language it says you will in a present tense perfect sense make the total joy of the Lord a reality right now in the presence of the Lord. That's our believer's anthem, by the way. In the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy. That's who God is. There, there's not a different, there isn't a part of heaven where the bummer part of heaven. There's not like a bad neighborhood in heaven, okay? It's like, well, I'd like to live over there with everyone else, but I, you know, I got stuck over here on the, on the east side of heaven. I'm not trying to be too descriptive, but you know what I'm saying. It's like we can all think a place. Well, you know, I'm kind of like you know, live over there. There's no such place in heaven. For in His presence is the fullness of joy, and He's everywhere in heaven. David saw that, understood it, and so he quotes from David in that wonderful 16th Psalm. And then he goes on, verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. And so now he personalizes it for him that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. One of the sites that you'll see and and no one really knows for sure if it's the tomb of David, but it is a very special place to the Jewish people. I made the mistake of going in there one time without my head covered, and I, I wasn't intentional. I just didn't know. And so I walked in, and, and there were a number of, of uh, people who were not happy, shall we say. And they did everything but throw me actually out physically. It was like, oh, push me out. And I went and got a yarmulke and covered my head, you know, a kippah. and I went back in, and it was just, I mean, they're praying over this rock. It's supposedly the tomb of David. David died. But the Lord raised him up. You're going to get to meet him one day, the great king. Let me speak to you freely of the pa- patriarch David. He's dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. and Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, who's that fruit? Jesus, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's David's line, the kingly line. He will be like Melchizedek. He will be both priest and king. He will combine the two offices. He'll be both of the high priest. He'll be of the kingly line of David. That is the fruit of his body according to the flesh. That's why the genealogies in both Luke and Matthew's Gospels are so important. It traces back the full lineage of Jesus. That is according to his flesh that he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Man, can you not wait until Jesus comes back and sits on the throne of David? Because he never got a chance to do that when he was there the first time. Scripture says he's going to do that, so he must be coming again to sit on the throne of David. Amen? And there's going to be a literal throne in Jerusalem. There's also going to be a literal temple in Jerusalem, which there isn't one of those yet either. But there will be. And he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Those people sitting there saw Jesus alive. They had also seen him killed. No one would have survived that. One need only read the gospel account to realize that in that day and time, it's not like Lifelight came in with a helicopter and, do, 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 and set down and Jesus was whisked away to, you know, to one of the great hospitals in, in modern-day Israel. If you go to the, the main hospital there in Jerusalem, you're going to get some of the finest medical care in the world. But then I'm afraid it was not the same. And I'm pretty sure someone who was beaten so savagely had lost probably nearly all of the volume of their blood. Jesus was dead. And yet, these people all saw him alive. That was proof. They had seen him. A third proof. Verse 33, and therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. He's giving them proof. He's saying, look, what you're seeing right here, right now, Jesus said he would send another helper, a comforter, to come alongside to empower you. He did it. We can trust him. He was bearing witness to those things. And he gave them then a fourth proof. At that resurrection of Christ, remember the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise you from the dead. Whether it's when you die on this earth and you are raised into new life and taken to heaven to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, or whether we're all in that sense resurrected together at the rapture, no matter which one of those things happen, or if you're one of those people that believes that won't even happen, it's still going to happen at the coming of the Lord. The resurrection. Presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34 For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, The Lord said to my Lord. How many Lords are there? There's two, and one is talking to the other. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. So for those who don't believe in the Trinity, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Holy Spirit in the world empowering all of these things. Yes, God is one, but he is three in one. There is one God in three persons. But if Jesus is dead, then Jesus can't send the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is dead. But Jesus is alive and he said, I will send the Holy Spirit. So if he died, he can't do that. And so Peter says, what you're seeing right now is exactly what Jesus said he would do. He sent the Holy Spirit. That verse can't be applied to David. Look at Matthew 22, you'll see that. Peter's conclusion is here also a declaration. Jesus is the Messiah, and you crucified him. What are you going to do with that? That's a tough piece of information. You killed him. You put him to death. Then he explains what had happened. And therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Oh, he's really making enemies now. He's actually master. In other words, he's saying, the one you crucified is Yahweh Adonai. He is God. He's your Lord. He's your master. <laughs> and now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I mean, it just like, whoa. <laughs> like, <"Ooh." laughs> no! What should we do? Peter says to them, staggering simplicity of the message. Notice Peter doesn't say, well, you really need to go read your Bibles. Maybe enroll in Bible college, you know, so next time there's a Messiah around, you won't do the same thing. You'll get your theology all squared away and know exactly what's going on. He doesn't say any of that. And then say, well, we're doing a new believers class next week, and you, know, you can come to that. And those things are all good, by the way. Don't let me dissuade you from what the Lord might be doing. You may be calling some of you to Bible college. And you may be calling some of you to the new believers class. But then Peter said to them, repent. Do a 180, turn around, go the other way. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, look, let's keep this simple. The Lord Jesus himself, while he was here, did two ordinances. They are communion and baptism. And so as they were all together in one place, and we're going to see that in a moment. As they were partaking of a meal and they had communion together. He says, look, let's make this easy for everybody. Repent of your sin. Go be baptized for identification with the Lord and receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit so you too can go live your life for Christ, just like I'm doing right here. For the promises to you and to your children and all who are afar off and as many as the Lord our God will call. Notice he doesn't say that everyone will receive that call. He simply says that the Lord will call and some will receive. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. In other words, he preached a message to a largely Jewish audience, and they repented of what they had believed about Jesus of Nazareth, who they now understood was the Messiah of glory, and in doing so, they repented of what they used to believe, and they turned towards Jesus and received and believed and went out and were baptized. They identified with the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through water baptism. And then they received the same power that Peter was speaking with. And he just leaves them in that place. Look, you're guilty. There's an unfortunate word there, and I'll point it out to you. It's the word for. It's translated for the remission of sins. It's translated that way in both the King James and and the New King James as well. And it really doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. It actually means on the account of or on the basis of. In other words, you are a believer, and so on account of the fact that you are a believer, be baptized. It doesn't say be baptized so that your sins will be forgiven. It says because your sins are forgiven, be baptized. So he's not preaching baptismal regeneration here. Praise the Lord. Because if you get regenerated by baptism, the entire role of faith in Hebrews 11, there's not one person that's going to be in heaven. Because not a single Old Testament saint got baptized. Not one of them. Not David, not Moses, not Abraham, not Isaac. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, they're the greats of faith. And then Abraham waited and believed by faith. And because of that, that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And you will see him in heaven. Because he believed in Messiah. He just simply believed before Jesus completed the work on the cross. And because they believed that truth, they were saved. But they were saved the same way that anyone else is saved. The moment Jesus said to Telestai, it's finished. All of that became a reality to him. And that's why after he was raised, he then set them free from their captivity in Sheol. So he says, look, you guys repent and be baptized. As we wrap it up tonight, I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In other words, they spent time together in the word. We get the apostles' doctrine from that which is spoken of in the word. We understood what they understood because we have understood it by the word of God. That's why the apostle Paul in Romans 10, verse 15 to 17, he speaks those words to us. He says, faith thereby comes hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's a beautiful picture of how we understand the great doctrines of faith. And so they steadfastly adhered to the things that we find in the word. And fellowship. They had koinonia together. Very simple things here. The first church was a mighty church, a powerful church, in the breaking of bread. And he's using, I believe, both contexts there. In other words, they got together and they actually fellowshiped. And they fellowshiped around the table. But they also celebrated the Lord's Supper. And in prayer. You see all those things? Pretty simple things, right? That's what church is all about. It's about people who love the Lord, getting together to study the Word, fellowshipping together, having that tight-knit communion that comes from being fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The breaking of that bread. And in prayer. And then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together and they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among them all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily in that one accord in the temple. Breaking bread. We went house to house and ate food with gladness, the simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily them that were saved. Now, as we wrap up tonight, I want you to see something. And I want to speak to you tonight because you're that group that comes some other time other than Sunday morning. Many of you were also here on Thursday night. I want you to see something about the first century church. The church of the book of Acts. They were in one accord. They didn't meet just on the Lord's Day on Sunday. They met daily. They got together every day. Now I'm not saying we need to necessarily do corporate church service. But we need to get together with other believers daily. Why? Why? Because that's how we get strengthened and built up and encouraged and prayed for and counseled with. And God speaks into our lives. They cared for others daily. We'll get to that in chapter 6. That's how needs are met. When you develop friendships and relationships and you see each other other than just on Sunday in a one hour and maybe 15 minute trip here to church which praise God for all the blessed saints that come on Sunday morning. But if that's the only thing you do, you're going to be anemic as a Christian. As much as we try and cram as much of Jesus as we can get in that hour, you need more than that. And one of the ways that we meet each other's needs is by getting together, we find those things out. They did that. Notice another daily thing. The church was added to daily them that were saved. Why? Because if you lead people to Christ in your home and in your workplace and in your leisure time, you're going to add daily rather than weekly when I give an altar call. Amen? So please don't leave that on me. Go enjoy the blessing of leading people to Jesus. Amen? Do it daily. Make it part of your life. When we get to chapter 17, another daily thing they did, they searched the scriptures daily. So get in your Bibles. Search them daily. Be Bereans. Get a little Jesus every day. Now, if you're trying to live on a once a week dose of Jesus, you're going to be really hungry for the bread of life. You can't take in enough in an hour, it's not possible. You know what happens when you overeat? That's what happens spiritually too. You cram a whole bunch of food in on Sunday morning and then by the end of the week you're like starving to death. You need a little bit of a meal of Jesus every week. You need to take in the bread of life. And then finally they increase their number daily. I love that. Do you know how joyous it is when I hear that, you know, up at a skate outreach 15 kids gave their life to Jesus and I hear that three junior hires gave their life to Jesus and I hear that five high schoolers gave their life to Jesus and I hear that somebody was being prayed for in the front office and they gave their life to Jesus and by, by the way, not one of those things happened on Sunday. Not one of them. They all happened this week but not on Sunday. Daily is a way that we need to live our lives with Jesus. This powerful message is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And let's be that church. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to pray. Thank you. Amen. Father in heaven, uh, we have come. And Lord, we ask of you to send the Holy Spirit afresh and anew to our lives. Lord, we believe that the Spirit did not depart uh, from this earth. That the Spirit is not Ichabod but rather is alive and well in your church, in us as believers, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and empower us for all these things. Lord, for the making of disciples, for the winning of souls, Lord, for the meeting of needs, for the breaking of bread, for the fellowship of the saints, for the gathering together daily in one accord, for that peace that comes through knowing that you are God. Lord, your counsel, your wisdom, And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come and fill us as your people. And God, we ask right now, by the power of your Spirit, that if there's anyone in here tonight, Lord, that has not made that profession of faith in you, Jesus, that they would not be able to escape that call of grace, Lord, that that grace that cries out to us from the heavens through the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, which you did on Calvary's cross, is available to anyone who will ask. And so we pray that maybe someone tonight would come into that right relationship with their maker, with you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Savior of the world. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. And we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the plans of the Father. Amen.